Hello, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we experience life as friends with faith through encountering God, loving others, and making a difference in our community. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast where you can plug into Quest in person or online. Now let's dive into this week's teaching. Good to see you. So glad to be able to be here with you today. Uh, one of the things I love hearing uh, people share is their faith history. I love it because I love finding out, uh, I find it fascinating what influences people and how it influences us. And even more so, I love seeing how the kingdom of God breaks into people's lives and orchestrates experiences and thoughts and moments to help each of us encounter his spirit as real and personal. Uh, today we're actually going to talk about another value of the of the quest in the vineyard churches, which is messy as well, and, and and yet it's also freeing and very empowering, and it's something that's very very personal to me as well. In fact, back in the 1980s, when I was preparing for uh, ministry in school, uh, I got to hear John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, uh, a number of times, and he greatly impacted me in what we're going to talk about today at a really pivotal time in my life. Uh, though my, the details of my experience are, are certainly probably different than many of yours, I suspect many of you actually have had similar experience in your faith journey. While I didn't grow up Catholic, I know some of you did, and, and some of you have told me stories that are very similar to my experience, just different context. Many of you grew up in Protestant churches, and you've also described your faith upbringing with very similar experiences. And if you're t- here today or you're listening today online and you don't have much faith background, maybe, maybe not much at all, I'll bet that some of your feelings and struggles that I'm going to describe that I had are very similar to the ones that you had that caused you to struggle with your faith or maybe even possibly reject your faith. Now, I grew up as a PK, which is uh, short for preacher's kid, pastor's kid. In fact, uh, I think they should come up with a new title for me, maybe something like GPK, because both my grandparents were also pastors. Um, I, uh, all good, honest, faithful people who were pursuing, uh, following Jesus with integrity, and, and I'm really grateful for my heritage. Now, some of you are thinking, you just lost me, Ross, because I'm not a PK, so I can't relate to you. Hang with me. I'll bet you can. I'll bet you can. In my upbringing, there were lots of rules. Um, and while there was also a beautiful seriousness about really truly knowing and following Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives because of the way things were lived and taught, my faith became as much about avoiding sin as it became about becoming something. So I always tended to live life afraid of sinning, afraid of, uh, of relating to people who might tempt me to sin, and I always lived life really rigidly with a lot of rules and rituals that, so that I would be good. I would be okay. In my day, people dressed up for church, and, and I can still remember my forest green polyester leisure suit with my brownie orange tie and my two-tone suede shoes. And for some of you, I'm bringing back uh, fashion nightmares to your mind. Frankly, I remember being a little bit frustrated having to wear a suit and tie to go to church. I felt stuffy, and it made it less enjoyable to play with friends after church. So for some of you, you had the same kind of experience, being fearful of sinning, being warned to avoid anyone and anything that would tempt you to sin, being so rules-focused and working hard to make sure you lived right that you either you ended up living life tired or maybe even rejecting your faith, rejecting because of the self-righteous, judgmental nature of the tone of it all. Some of, that, some of you, your experience was that. 
or it may have also been that your reaction to that same thing was like me. It was performance orientation, always having to feel like I was better than other people. And if you were like me, that self-righteousness actually damaged and alienated some of your friendships, and you deeply regret that. My performance orientation continued through college and, and there were started to have a few cracks in it then, but I still held it together until my senior year when I began to run out of gas. And that combined with uh, some difficult experiences resulted in the straw that broke at least this camel's back and I plummeted into some pretty deep depression for four years. Now, some of you have heard me allude to that a few times over the course of my time here. We're going to talk about it a little bit differently today. While God didn't cause that depression for me, in my particular circumstance, my sinful ways of thinking actually caused most of it. God did some wonderful things through that time period in my life. It was a time when the Holy Spirit really came to me and helped me begin to see Jesus and see Scripture differently. I began to understand in a much more deep, clearer way what it meant to follow Jesus and truly be, if you want to use the words, a truly good Christian in a sense. The pressure of performance began to lessen for me. I actually found myself enjoying working hard and doing things better, more. The root cause of what caused me to be judgmental began to be rooted out of me, and I began to see relationships differently. And I began to enjoy discovering relationship and friendship with people who did not believe the same as I did and maybe even lived morally very different than me. There's a phrase that encapsulates this that is famous in the vineyard, and, and I love the phrase. It's this. We're going to talk about this today. It's come as you are, but don't stay as you are. See, our culture today loves at least part of this phrase. We love at least the first part of the phrase. In fact, we trumpet the first part of that phrase in our culture as, as, as just the, the ultimate thing that we should be about, that we should accept people wherever they are. And, it, and to trumpet that all by itself, it sounds noble. But, but even misguided Christian leaders trumpet that first part by itself as the complete ultimate definition and guiding virtue of what love is. One of the Christian leaders this last week posted on their Facebook page, uh, they said this, diversity is our jam, judgment is our enemy, I love everyone as they are. And then they went on to post to describe all things that were, a bunch of things that were clearly not in line with the Bible or Jesus' teaching. And what they're saying is just as they are, no change required. Recent research found that 89% of Americans believe if you criticize someone else's moral choice that you are judgmental and extremist, many would even say. Even if you're confronting a friend, for instance, on something like, I don't know, maybe adultery or some other sin in their life, the moment you talk to them about that being wrong, the conversation flips and you are the worst sinner in the room right then because you are so judgmental. 89% of the people answered questions that gave that strong indication. Think about it. That's no surprise, is it? It's no surprise. One of the most repeated and highest value statements as a virtue in our culture is what? I'm not judgmental. I'm not going to judge you. And yet, it's not true, is it? Everyone is judging everyone else all the time. Just spend five minutes on social media or listening to the news, or political debates of today uh, with your friends. It seems to me that many of us and much of our culture swing wildly between two extremes. We either don't judge anything, 
Or we ruthlessly judge everything with a wicked sense of humor and through wicked put-downs. We swing between these two extremes and we've forgotten how to live graciously in the middle where we hold to both accepting people as they are and in healthy relationship-strengthening ways spurring one another on to growth. Come as you are, but don't stay as you are. Is so powerful because it both values wherever you are right now, not where you think you should be, not where I think you should be or anybody else thinks you should be, but where you are right now. But it also doesn't avoid our need to grow and change. And Jesus, man, was he amazing at this. We're going to look at two of Jesus' most memorable stories towards the end of this message that, is admire, that are admired by believers and skeptics alike that show this idea in such stark, stark relief right before our eyes. To get there, allow me to walk you through uh, some powerful scriptural truths that I had to come to grips with in order to move away from my self-righteous, judgmental, pressure-filled, religious performance approach to faith and discover something much more rich and much more freeing. One of the things that drove me to be a performance person early in life is, is like many of you, even if you were the opposite of me in the way you reacted to this, we tend to think that true Christians, really good religious people, have it all together. And some of you left church at one point in the past because there was clearly a religious leader in, the, in that setting that didn't have it all together, and it was extremely disillusioning to you. For others of you, you've lived life hiding stuff, trying uh, that you've done wrong because it's, it's so important for you to look like you have it all together. But inside, it weighs you down. You walk through life feeling nervous and fearful of being found out, dreading the consequences or the embarrassment of that, and you aren't free inside. You're just like I was in my performance approach to life, tightly wound up inside, trying to hold it all together. So... The way we often deal with that is we say things like this. You say, I'm basically a good person, so God won't judge me on judgment day. I do more good than bad. I'm better than so-and-so. Compared to them, I'm a saint. Sure, I've done some mistakes, but, but failures, you know, you know, they're just kind of what make you who you are. And, and I'm mostly really a good, honest, trustworthy person, so I think God will take that into account on judgment day, and that's the way we live our faith in our life. We have this drive in us to justify that we are good. For some, that may work for a time on the outside, but inside it doesn't work. It will almost certainly lead you to the place of disillusionment or cynicism or escapism or avoidance or even desperation like it did for me in that four-year period of, 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 of depression. For others of you, you deal with a very different. Sometimes I'll be talking to someone who doesn't know Jesus and they'll say to me, well... God doesn't love me. He couldn't love me because of all the things I've done. And even though I can't fully relate to that person's experience all the time, I've felt that before. And I can understand how people might feel that way. But that's not Jesus. And it's not the God of the Bible. I want you to know the God of the Bible, the Jesus that I know, who loves you more deeply than you could ever imagine, far more than any other human in your life could ever love you. I want you to know the God who came as Jesus because he believes in you and he believes that you are worth saving and that you are able to be saved. 
I want you to know the God who is slow to anger, who is quick to forgive, who is unfailing in His love, faithful even when you are unfaithful. I want you to know the God that when He thinks of you, He smiles with excitement over how He made you and how He loves you. And He loves you so much that He is constantly working to help you be the best version of you the most fulfilled, the most content, the most joyful, the most peaceful, the most loving, the most meaningful, the most free version of who you are. But that change in us that helps us even begin to understand that kind of love and freedom, it all starts, it all starts in understanding our sin. Ah, great, Ross. Why do you have to focus on the negative? If you see this topic of sin as we talk about it today as being negative, then, and if you don't see it as vital, as positive, as freeing, as empowering, as uplifting, as inspiring, then you don't understand God or his love or the Bible. Let me get it this way. I'm going to ask you three questions I've heard other people do in the past, and and they're essentially a sin inventory. Great. Now make it even worse. And I'm going to actually make it even worse. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you answer yes to any of these sin inventory questions. So now they're generic enough. I'm not going to, I'm not going to get specific enough to air all your dirty laundry. So don't hesitate to participate. Okay. So the first question, have you ever told a lie? Raise your hands. Look around. If there's anybody next to you who doesn't have their hand up, nudge it because they're lying. Okay? Second question. Second question. Have you ever stolen something? Anything, like money or something from the store, bubble gum, I don't care, or taken office supplies for personal use? Third question. Have you ever lusted after another person's spouse, either physically or emotionally, wanting to be wanted and valued, even if only for a few seconds? Now, some of you are having a hard time raising your hands because it's a little more personal. My hand's up, so let's be honest, okay? The likelihood is that every single person has done every single one of these sins. So what do you call a person who lies? It's not a trick question. A liar. What do you call a person who has stolen something? A thief. What do you call a person who has lusted after someone's spouse or someone other than their spouse? An adulterer. And Jesus actually says, if you lust after someone else who is not your spouse, that you have already committed the sin of adultery even before you take any action on it because you've sinned in your heart. So by your own admission, you and I are all lying, thieving adulterers. Great! That's what I came to church to be inspired by being told, right? Here's the point. I'm not a good person, and neither are you. There are a lot of nice people who do good things, but I have a challenge for you. Try going 24 hours and saying and thinking totally good. No words, no thoughts, no actions at all that are corrupted by selfishness or jealousy or lust or irritation or anger or deceit or demeaning another person. No deviations, no exceptions. One selfish, smug, irritated thought, word or action and you failed. Can't do it, can you? We can't be truly good by nature. Even our best efforts are contaminated by sin. 
Judging ourselves by another person to say we are better or we are mostly good is like saying the car on the right is a really good car and I want that car. Neither one of them is good. We are all broken, just in different areas and to different degrees. Romans 3 says it this way, everyone has sinned. No one measures up to God's glory. You see, we were made in God's image and we all fall so far short of that glory. It's not even close. Earlier in verse 10 in Romans 3, it says, no one is good. No one in all the world is innocent. Not Mother Teresa, not Martin Luther King, not your saintly grandmother, no one. All have sinned. All have fallen short of being good. Okay, Ross, you said this was going to be a positive. I'm getting really depressed. No, this is really positive. Recognizing this in your life and in yourself is the only thing that can set you free from living a life of judgment. The world around us obviously can't live judgment-free even though they trumpet it so much. They say they don't judge and they judge all the time, every day, all the time. The only way we can stop judging and ever show true compassion toward others is to come face to face with our own sinfulness and own it and realize we are in the exact same boat as everyone else in the world. You see, the biggest lesson that came to me out of those four years of depression was this. I am no different than anyone else. I came face to face in that time with the fact that my thoughts, my temptations can be as dark as anyone else's. And I was actually in seminary at the time training to be a minister for God's sake. I'm no different. No more good. No more able to save myself than anyone else in the world. I am a broken sinner just like everyone else. And I can never fix myself to be good enough. See, only when this truth of Scripture is settled can we begin to even accept others as they are. It's this starting point is also what really puts us in touch with how amazing God's love is for us. And it's this starting point is the starting point where we can actually learn to truly love others as they are and express grace and the kindness of God to them. And it's only when we accept this starting point of truth that you and I actually even really know what we need in life. You see, we don't need to be given a second chance because we're just a bunch of mistakers needing correction. No. Even when you know what the correction is, we still sin. Everybody in this room knows that outbursts of anger and demeaning someone, our spouse or our boss is sin, and we are going to do it again no matter how many times we say we're not going to do it. We don't need correction no one is good enough. We are all sinners helpless to make ourselves good enough. Every single one of us need Jesus to save us. All of us. None excluded. 
We see this actually one time. Jesus is, in one occasion, has this interaction with a prostitute while he's eating dinner with a religious leader at his home. She comes in and she washes Jesus' feet with her tears and dries her feet with, dries his feet with her hair, and then she pours a year's wages worth of perfume on Jesus' feet. And Jesus says something in this that always used to tick me off when I was younger. He says, one who is forgiven much loves much. Well, in my younger self-righteous days, I used to get angry because I didn't have that much to be forgiven of. I was basically a good person compared to almost everyone else, and that's unfair if I can't experience that level of love because I didn't screw up my life enough. But do you see how deep and sinister the sin of self-righteousness was in me? See, most people thought I was a really nice, good person. Not on the inside. No. I am that prostitute. I am no better than her. I have been forgiven much. And you have been forgiven much. In fact, in the interaction with the prostitute the religious, and the religious leader, Jesus actually intentionally sets up this contrast, pointing out that she, this prostitute, is actually more good. I know that's grammatically not correct, but more good in that moment than the religious leader, who was Jesus' host. So what's the solution? How are we saved? Well, it's not by penance. I heard recently a story of a couple where the husband had had an affair with one of their friends, a family friend, and through lots of counseling and working through forgiveness over a long time, and their their marriage actually survived, and it was actually back at the point where their marriage was thriving. But the wife was talking to someone, and she said, every day my husband lives with this weight of regret, of feeling like he never has done enough penance to pay for the way he betrayed me, for the way he betrayed himself and what he knows is right and good, for the way he betrayed God, for the way he betrayed and caused damage to our children and our friendships. So even after things were restored and forgiven and going well, he was still doing penance for that by carrying such a weight of guilt. For some of you, I know that's not your story. Your story is a betrayal in your marriage that fractured it irretrievably. And you too carry weight. You carry the sadness of the fractured relationships around you. Each day you wake up and you put on this heavy backpack of penance, of guilt, of regret and shame, and you carry it around thinking, if I only carry this well enough, then I can be good enough and free again. You are working hard. But it's not the kind of work that you do for a normal aspiration of a dream to make a better life. It is working hard, driven by guilt, relentlessly being driven by the taskmaster of shaming yourself into being different and better. And penance doesn't work. It will never relieve your shame or your guilt. What does work? Years ago, one of my children deliberately deceived us on something. I I don't even remember what the issue that they deceived us on. As I recall, it was something that I as a parent almost laughed at afterwards because it wasn't that big of a deal, but it was still a deceit. 
And I don't remember the full circumstance, but I do remember that in a moment, something caused their guilt to burst out like a dam breaking. And they came to Wendy and I crying and, and devastated about what they had done, devastated how they'd hurt, our, hurt us and, tr- and our trust with them and how they'd offended God and what they do. And here's what I remember. I remember both Wendy and I sitting down on the couch so we were eye level with them and looking at them as they cried uncontrollably saying, I love you. There's nothing you could ever do to not make me love you. You are my child. You are part of me. And I will always love you. And I will always pursue you. And I remember that moment following that, being one of the sweetest ever parenting moments as they continued to sob, but this time with a sense of relief and they fell into our arms and we had one of the most wonderful moments of love and hugging I can ever remember in my life. What if God came down to your level and he did the same thing to you? He told you how much he loved you, that you are my son, you are my daughter. I will always love you. You are a part of me, and I will always pursue you and always want you. God did that, didn't he? And it's all throughout Scripture. Romans 3 talks about, kind of, kind of alludes to that, but it also gives a, a solution to what we're talking about today as well. It says the free gift of God's grace makes us right with him. Christ Jesus paid the price to set us free. God gave Christ as a sacrifice to pay for sins through the spilling of his blood, so God forgives the sins of those who have faith in him. God did all this to prove that he does what is right, that he is a God of mercy, so he didn't punish for their sins the people who lived before Jesus lived. God did all this to prove in our own time that he does what is right, and he also makes right with himself those who believe in Jesus. So who can brag? No one. None of us can brag that we are better than anyone else. None of us can brag that we are good enough. No one. And in spite of that, God pursues us to make things right, to love us, to sacrifice himself for our good. His love is more perfect than any parent who never gives up on their child and is always loving and pursuing their child regardless of what's going on. See, this recognition is the only thing that can remove the hypocrisy of our culture that says, come as you are, I'm not judgmental, but we are judgmental. Until we truly own the depth of our sin and that we are truly no better than the heroin addict on the street, the gang member, the rich person who's been convicted of fraud, the abusive boss or the political leader, they are not good and we are not good. We've all sinned. We are all broken and cannot fix ourselves enough to be good. See, I think this is the reason why Jesus says it is really hard for the rich to be saved to enter the kingdom of God. It's because the rich are successful in comparison to everyone else and the rich live in the comfort of that comparison and don't recognize their need and that they are no different than anyone else. Last week we talked about how the kingdom of God and even more specifically how our relationship with the Holy Spirit is central to being a follower of Jesus. 
I think one of the barriers that keep us from relying on the Holy Spirit and recognizing our need to be empowered by God in order to grow is our own success and our self-reliance. Because when we don't get that we are no better than anyone else, when we live life through comparison, thinking that I am mostly good, good enough, better than others, we have no felt need for the Holy Spirit. What we have a need for is control. And control is what we pursue. And in a world where everyone falls short, the only way to control our self-image is to compare ourselves and put other people down and believe we are different and better. And yet Jesus is calling us to recognize our need and give up our control and invite the Holy Spirit and receive his forgiveness and love and allow the Holy Spirit to be the one to guide us and help us and provide all meaning in our life. See, come as you are. Don't stay as you are. God's Spirit comes to us regularly and nudges us and to change, invites us to change out of extravagant, faithful, always there with you love. He identifies sin so that we, with the Holy Spirit, can put it to death. And that is the most glorious, most positive, most liberating thing that can happen in our life. Why? Because we're already accepted and loved. So talking about sin is no longer a threat to us. Instead, it is the hope of freedom, of strength, and wholeness in our life. See, here's the truth of the difference that God made in sending the Holy Spirit to us after Jesus as opposed to before that the Bible makes really clear. Before the Spirit of God came upon people from time to time. Not all people, just prophets, leaders, and, and, and kings primarily, but the, but the promise we read last week is what? Now God gives His Spirit to all who follow Him. God is always with you, always there loving you, inviting you to be the good that you were created to be, even when you grieve the Holy Spirit by your disobedience, He is still there with you. You are still accepted. You are still loved, still being pursued. You in that moment of disobedience and grieving the Holy Spirit are just the child standing before his parents, not yet having fallen into the waiting arms of their love. See, We see the power of come as you are and don't stay as you are in Jesus. In John 8, we see this large crowd around Jesus and a group of uh, religious leaders breaks through the crowd, dragging a woman caught in adultery before Jesus. Now, I want you to take a moment and I want you to put yourself in the place of that, the fear of those consequences of, of if you had committed that sin, what would you be fearing about the destruction of your life, of your relationships, of your family, of your relationships going on in your life? For, for this woman being dragged before Jesus, the Jewish law said that the penalty was being stoned to death, meaning the entire crowd was going to pick up rocks and throw them at her until she was dead. For some of you, you've actually faced the relational destruction of adultery in your life. And you thought in the moment you were facing that, that it would be better to be dead. You know the kind of fear and the pain she's facing. What does Jesus, this great teacher, the one who claimed to be God, do? He actually stoops down. 
He writes with his finger on the ground. The story gives the sense that this was a really, really long, awkward moment. A time in which I suspect the f- crowd first kind of grumbled, figuring out he was going to answer. Then gradually, after several minutes of this, fell silent, waiting for this great teacher, this healer, this miracle worker to answer. And Jesus finally gets up and says, He who is without sin, you cast the first stone. The air is thick with stunned silence. Jesus goes back to writing in the sand. And one by one, the entire crowd slips away over several minutes, leaving Jesus and this woman alone with maybe some of Jesus' core disciples still standing there. But there's silence. And Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Come as you are. Don't stay as you are. I love you even in the midst of that sin, but don't stay there. There's better for you, so grow. Another day, Jesus pursues a guy named Zacchaeus. Now, Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, uh, very wealthy. Historians unanimously say that the Roman tax collecting system was set up so that the tax collectors actually made their money through extortion and bribes. Zacchaeus was obviously good at it. He was a chief tax collector, so not only was he getting his own direct bribes through his own extortion of money, but he was getting a cut of a whole bunch of other people he was supervising and all their extortion and bribes that they were getting. He was getting a cut. He was a very... Wicked, powerful, rich man. Jesus came to town and Zacchaeus wanted to see this great man he'd heard about. So to Zacchaeus' surprise, Jesus stops and looks at him and says in Luke 19, I must stay at your house today. And as they were walking along the road to Zacchaeus' house, the crowd was saying so Jesus and Zacchaeus could hear it, Jesus is going to be the guest of this sinner. You hear the judgment in that? And Zacchaeus is surprised. Jesus, this revered holy man, still came. He ate with him. He treated him with respect and kindness and honor. And without Jesus saying a word, the come-as-you-are love Jesus shows makes Zacchaeus not want to stay as he is. And he responds saying, look, Lord, Here and now I give half of what I own to those who are poor. And if I cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay it back. I will pay it back four times the amount I took. Come as you are. Don't stay as you are. One of the things that makes me sad about the end of summer, it's exciting football season, but one of the things that makes me sad is that winter's right around the corner. And winter brings lots of snow and slush and salt, and the cars are going to be filthy dirty for the next several months. Now, we have one old van that we don't really care that much about more. We just let winter build up on it and just rust that mom out. And I'm sure if you see that around here in the winter, you probably, all you people who like to keep everything clean, just want to go up and, you know, write, wash me on it. But the reality is, you go to the car wash, and before you get home, the car looks salty and dirty again. So what's the use? feels like you can never get rid of the dirt. Some of you feel dirty like that as the cars in winter. 
no matter what you do. You just can't get rid of the dirt in your life. You, the guilt, the shame, the failure to be what you want to be, what you know is right and best and good in your life. And that dirt, maybe it's a host of things for you. I don't know. Maybe it's something you did that really hurt a relationship in the past. Maybe it's a recurring bad habit that you're just so disappointed in yourself in or you, if, if the damage it does to other people, whatever it is. You may have even tried spiritual meditation or other practices and habits and tried to break out of that dirt and leave the guilt and the shame behind and you just can't do it. It never seems to be enough and it won't be enough until you honestly reconcile yourself to what we have talked about today because you don't need more control in your life to never make a mistake again. You are a sinner and you need a Savior who can clean you because you can't Do it yourself. See, Jesus is offering to wash you. And he'd take that dirt out of your life and forgive you and wash you. Not just, not just take care of the past, but he's, he's willing to forgive you for the present and forgive you for the future perfectly. When you trust Jesus, you become clean and you are on the same footing as that person who always grew up going to church, always living the good life. You are on equal spiritual footing to any pastor or spiritual person you can imagine before God. You are that clean. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, or what your past is like, or about it's been a part of your past, you are completely clean. And it's a gift of God given to us by faith. But it isn't received without a response. You have to turn toward Jesus. You have to acknowledge that you are that sinful and that in need of his help and receive the gift. Receive that loving acceptance that is waiting there for you with open arms and then turn and enjoy and trust and rely in the Holy Spirit empowering your life for going forward. Worship team, go ahead and come on up. Come as you are, don't stay as you are. That's who we want to be at Quest, to welcome anyone with open arms regardless of their views or their lifestyle and walk with them in the same way Jesus loved and express such kindness and respect towards us, even when we're so messed up. See, the loving acceptance of a person right where they are is the leading edge of who we are in expressing God's mission to the people around us through our own lives and through our church. And then to continue to walk with people as the Holy Spirit nudges us and nudges them to face sin and be free of sin, walking into greater and greater wholeness. So how can you respond today? You can respond with grateful worship, recognizing that you are no better and no worse than anyone else on the planet. And come and worship through communion, the symbols of Jesus' love to us, that he came to pursue us and love us and paid his price to forgive us and and be in relationship with us. For some of you, if you're here and you've been that person who's been trying to be good enough all your life, you've been the one who goes around and saying, yeah, I'm good enough and God, you know, I do more good than bad and God won't judge me someday because of that. He'll take that into account. God is inviting you to let go of the pressure of that. And to let go of the guilt and the sin and the failure and the measuring and the stress of that and choose to follow him so that you can experience the come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And all the peace and the joy that comes with that. 
If that's you, and maybe you've even never made a decision to follow Jesus in the first place, and you're going, I want that, then I want to invite you to come and receive communion in two. And as you do, just take it and say, God, I do need your forgiveness because I don't need just correction. I need saving because I cannot not sin. And then just accept his forgiveness and his love coming towards you and accept his spirit coming to you because he wants to become alive to you through the power of his spirit in this moment. So, Lord, we just ask that you would just be in this moment with us. Lord, I pray that any weight carried in here by anyone today, any weight of guilt, of shame, of the past, of the penance that we try to put ourselves through, thinking this is the way to motivate myself to be better in the future. I can't forget this pain and this shame. I have to let it motivate. Lord, I pray that you would just wipe that all away. And that you'd come right now to every single one of us and show us your love. Invite us into your arms. And give us the power of your spirit to live life better than we could ever do on our own. Holy Spirit, come. We welcome you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you're loving Quest Podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information on Quest, who we are, and what God is doing here, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. Thanks for listening.